0: Welcome to much more than the law, a production of the law firm of much shellist. I'm your host, Ed Shapiro, Uh, on much more than the law. We will, uh, introduce you to the heartbeat of our firm, which is its people. Um, we're going to be discussing developments in the law. We'll get to know some of our clients and some of our community partners. Uh, and our goal is to inform, educate, maybe inspire and maybe share a few laughs along the way. And, uh, we continue uh, looking forward to sharing this journey with you. Our guest today is Courtney Meister. Welcome, Courtney.
1: Hi, thanks for having me, Ed.
0: Yeah, so Courtney is co-chair, among other things, co-chair of our real estate group. She's a former uh, chair of our women's initiative, is involved in our firm marketing, and really does um, so many things to help our firm address the, the service and other needs of our Of our clients. And uh, it's great to have you. So we have a lot to talk about. Obviously, you're a real estate lawyer. We'll get to that. What I think would be really interesting is to learn how you uh, got to the place that you're at right now. You grew up in Chicago, right in the city.
1: I did. I did right in the city, right in a, to this day, I'd say about a mile radius my entire life.
0: So what was that like growing up as a kid in the city as opposed to the suburbs?
1: So I get asked this question quite a bit. And my response is, I don't know. I, you know, I have no perspective on on the other side. So, you know, I can't answer that. My backyard was Lincoln Park. My sister and I, we rode our bikes around the block. You know, our, our parents let us, let us be out and about. They just said, don't cross any streets. So we would make, la- you know, laps around the block. Um, when we got old enough, the park was one to do blocks in either direction. So that's where we went to play.
0: What was the young Courtney Maester doing other than riding bikes? What other things were you into?
1: Young Courtney Maester had very big glasses at that time, just to note if you want a visual. I mean, we were involved, again, my younger sister, she's 18 months younger than me. So we're close in age and did a lot of activities together. We actually did ice skating for a very long time, which took us to the burbs for those, you know, for those ice skating lessons. We did a lot of art classes, played the piano tried our hand at quite a few different instruments. Again, nothing that has carried with me to this day, something that I definitely regret. I should have listened to my parents back then at that time. Just a lot of different, a lot of different activities.
0: There are a number of lawyers that, that we work with who have family members who were lawyers, either a parent or, or a relative. Is there anybody in your family who was who a lawyer?
1: So I actually come from a family of quite a few lawyers. I am one of four girls. So I am the second youngest amongst the four of us. Three of the four of us are attorneys. So I'm bookmarked on either side of me, the one right above me and the one right below me. My father is also an attorney. So there were a lot of those legal influences in my life growing up.
0: What kind of law did each of them practice or do they practice?
1: So my dad, who will be 89 in May, has been practicing for, I mean, if I do the math, I don't know, 65 years. Wow. Um, You know, very different at that time. You know, it's interesting, you know, in his heyday, he did personal injury. So he was a litigator. He would go to court. He can also do your divorce, which he did for one of my friends. Um, You can do your real estate closing if you're buying or selling a house, your will, you know, very different than it is today, based on kind of how we practice and specialize. But I always knew him as a litigator, you know, going to court pretty much every day, always wearing a suit. My sisters are also, you know, in litigation type practices. For whatever reason, it never interested me. And I just, you know, went the transactional route.
0: We're dinner conversations, focusing on rather, you know, your dad's cases, or was he able to kind of separate that uh, from family time?
1: He was definitely able to separate and, you know, and, and he was definitely there and, you know, involved in activities. I will say to you, and this, where I think I really get my work ethic from, you know, my dad put in very long hours. And so, you know, that's, kind of what I associated with being an attorney. And it didn't deter me from obviously going into the profession, but there were plenty of times, and I'm prefacing this because I don't want it to come across as a negative. There were plenty of times when, you know, we would eat dinner and then my dad would come home after dinner. And then one of us would, you know, sit with him and kind of recap the day. But again, long hours associated with what he was doing. And certainly like if he was on trial.
0: Was it kind of always in the back of your mind that you would be a lawyer one day?
1: Obviously, that was a huge influence in my life, you know, just kind of surrounded by lawyers. Truthfully, I didn't know a whole lot about what else was out there. My parents, when I went to college, they didn't, well, again, they said you had to go to graduate school. So I could have gone and done, you know, whatever it is that I wanted to do. I am fascinated by medicine, but terribly afraid of needles of blood, you name it, yet I think it truly is the most fascinating profession out there. It just wasn't meant for me. Obviously, there are plenty of other post-college programs and professions that you can go into, but those were sort of the ones that stood out to me at the time. But yes, based on the legal influences in my life and just knowing kind of at the time when I was young, you know, it's a stable profession. You get a good education obviously would have the support of my family. It was also kind of nice going into college, knowing that I had in the back of my head, my plan that I was going to be a lawyer. It just, it made it a little easier in terms of the type of classes I wanted to take, you know, where I majored. I happened to major in psychology, just knowing that kind of, I already had my plan.
0: Talk a little bit about your decision to major in psychology. What was it about that subject area that was interesting to you?
1: So I know a lot of lawyers go in, you know, they major in history or political science. Those had really did not have any interest to me. I always thought psychology was just so fascinating and obviously a really important topic in today's world, given all the issues with mental health, particularly right now, you know, with the pandemic. But as I started taking classes in psychology, in different psych classes, found it to just be so fascinating. The most fascinating class I took actually was, it was called the psychology of criminal behavior. And I ended up being the TA for the professor in that class, which I kind of laugh at myself because I had office hours. People would come by, I'd be grading papers. I think I got paid $5 an hour for that. But the most fascinating part of that class, and I was in DC at the time, was that part of the class was going to a minimum security prison and talking to the inmates there. And it was very eye-opening. I mean, they were lovely people. They were so interested in just talking and they were so engaged and they were so smart. And it, it was a really valuable experience.
0: We all have these preconceived notions about who people are and what they're about and why they've ended up in a particular circumstance. And it's what a unique experience that you had to be able to interact with people who maybe had made poor choices, mm-hmm. right? But for a whole host of reasons that may be very different than you might have experienced growing up, you know, in Chicago and and so forth and so on. So my follow-up to that is your study and interest in, in psychology, does that play a part? And if so, how in, in the work that you do now?
1: I think that part of what we do as lawyers, and, I, and I'll personalize this to myself. I mean, I sort of joke quite frequently, right? That part of our job is, pe- is playing therapist. I mean, and that really is. It's really important for us as attorneys to listen and to hear what our clients have to say, to hear what other people, to hear what our colleagues have to say, you know, and really ask the right questions and really, um, really dig deep. And again, just really understand the client's perspective or what the person on the other side of a transaction or a case is saying, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily, you know, just don't just take it at face value, but we're counselors. And so I do think a big part of what we do is truly that is counseling. I mean, and, you know, you think about psychology, you think about people that go into that area, you think about therapists. I mean, that's what they do. They're counselors. So there really truly is, you know, some connections there.
0: There's no question about it. I mean, it's one of the perhaps one of the most undervalued skills that we can develop as lawyers is the ability to uh, check our own egos at the door, listen to what our clients have to say and what their needs are, and to not always jump to the conclusion that somehow we know best about how to solve their problem before perhaps we've even understood what their problem is in in the first place. It's interesting because my grandfather always used to say, if you really want to know what's going on health wise, you know, don't ask the doctor, ask the patient. So um, I've sort of applied that to my own legal practice, right? It's it's not about me and how smart or knowledgeable I may be. It's really what does this particular client need? And that's got to be critical in the work that you do as well.
1: It absolutely is. And I think that's a good reminder for everybody. You know, it, it really is What the client needs. And, you know, I agree with you. I think sometimes, right, attorneys go to school, they're trained a certain way. We think we know what we're doing, we think we know what's best. But really, at the end of the day, it's up to our clients. And it's really important for us to listen to our clients and listen to, again, whether it be strategy, whether it be response, whether it be pursuing a a cause of action, it's really up to the client. And again, boils down at the end of the day to just listening.
0: So you're in D.C. for college. You're studying psychology. You're meeting some some prisoners. Um, (laughs) You kind of you know that law school is is looming in, in the background. What about that decision to go directly to law school as opposed to choosing to work for a little bit? What were your thoughts on that?
1: So I wasn't given a choice in that decision. My parents thought that and I remember them saying this to me, and it wasn't in a bad way, you know, that they wanted me to go straight through to, again, whatever post college program I had decided to do. They were worried that if I started making my own money, that it would be very difficult to get me to go back to school. So, you know what? It worked out. Some people need that gap to really to really want it. Some people need that time to, to mature before they head into kind of the next phase. For me, it worked out. It, it was good advice on my parents' part. You know, there's no looking back now, but it worked out.
0: And so you, you decide to come back to Chicago to yeah. attend a, a law school. And what was your law school experience like?
1: So because I had grown up here and I had grown up here in the city. And I was living, and I went to Loyola. So Loyola, the campus is, you know, right downtown. In some respects, it was an extension of college. I had all my friends here, you know, so it was really nice having everyone around, you know, where some people had come in from out of town and like their sole focus was law school. I had my friends and I had my family very close by. Similar, I'd say, to what to what a lot of attorneys say, you know, the first year was tough, it was hard adjusting to the Socratic method. It was a lot of work. And then after that, you know, it, it it got to be a little bit more fun, you know, a little bit more flexible in terms of, you know, taking classes that, you know, were of greater interest. And also, at least at the time, if I recall this correctly, you weren't allowed to work your first year of law school, but after that you could. So as soon as that first year was over, you know, I really started delving into different things to see what, you know, to see what was out there. I had free time. Law school didn't take up all of my time. But like I said, I mean, I went to school. I showed up at school for my classes. And then the rest of my life was kind of just normal because I was in Chicago. My family were just a few blocks away and my friends were still around.
0: Yeah, that built-in support system, which God knows everybody needs, you know, in, in, uh, in, in school or it's helpful. So were were there any courses or professors in in law school that led you to want to focus on real estate practice?
1: There were not. I will tell you, and and maybe some of this is just my own lack of knowledge at the time, but when I was growing up and entering into law school at the time, again, because I had such a litigation focus in terms of my family members that were in law. I thought you either went into litigation or you went into corporate. I didn't realize there were so many other areas of law. And so when I came, when I was in law school, I just knew I was going to do corporate law, transactional. I didn't think anything of it really in terms of, you know, digging deeper and thinking about the specific areas. So the only thing again, I knew going into law school was that I did not want to be a litigator and whether this is an interesting fact or not, because a lot of people seem to be shocked by it, I never took a moot court class. Like I never did moot court. I never did a trial class. Like I was that adamant that I was not gonna be a litigator that I just completely steered away from it. So other than cutting out litigation, there was nothing specifically that led me into real estate law.
0: So it's really interesting because what I remember in law school is how many people I met that knew with certainty That they wanted to be trial lawyers, Mm -hmm. whether they had a family member who was a trial lawyer or they liked what they saw in the movies or on TV and you were on the opposite end of the the spectrum. So, you know, it's good to know what you don't want (laughs) as well as knowing what you do want. So so how did it come to be? that you ended up being a real estate lawyer.
1: So I started working during law school. This is going to seem incongruous to what I just said, but I was working at the CTA in their criminal prosecutions division. So as part of that summer internship, I did actually have to go to court. So that just further reinforced it. So as I continued to progress, I started working at a firm right out of law school. And, and again, I was I shouldn't say out of law school. I still was in law school. It was when the Silicon Valley tech venture capital craze was was happening back in the um, early 2000s. And they wanted to develop a tech venture practice. It was an area full of young people and they hired me. And they basically said, we want you to go out and network and we want you to meet people in this area and help us build connections in this area so we can build a practice. I'm like, great. This is fantastic. So, that's exactly what I did. Then I finished law school. Then I graduated from law school, and then things started getting real, right? Things started getting real at that time. And they didn't really have this venture tech practice. It didn't really turn out kind of what everyone had anticipated. And so now I graduated. Now I was a lawyer, and I, you know, I needed a job. I needed a position, and was particular firm didn't necessarily hire people right out of school it was me and one other one other guy and they ended up being flexible and agreed to hire both of us out of law school which which was new for them and this is my long answer to get to they said we have an opening in real estate so you're going to be a real estate lawyer and that's what happened <laughs> <laughs> i mean they they did me a favor I don't know that I knew it at the time. I knew I wasn't going into litigation. So that, you know, again, by process of elimination, that worked out. And so I became a real estate lawyer. And I'm glad I fell into this area because I really love it.
0: The beauty of that answer is we can plan, we can map it out. We can intend to go down a certain path. Sometimes, you know, the best decisions are made for you. And, you know, for you, you know, ending up in real estate, just as the way you described it, and then learning how to become a real estate lawyer to now co-chairing, you know, the whole real estate department, you know, of a firm that has, you know, one of the strongest real estate departments in the city is a, is a tremendous, tremendous journey. So, So let's go back. So they say, hey, okay, great. You're going to be in real estate who teaches you, who are your support system? Who are the mentors? How do you begin to learn how to do this area of law that you don't have any experience in?
1: When it first started, I started doing closing books and they would throw closing books at me and say, this is how you're going to learn. This is how you're going to get familiar with the documents. The one thing that stands out to me, looking at those closing books over and over again, and the one thing that they said to me was the closing books tells the story of the transaction. So- I was told to be mindful of the order of the documents that went in the closing book, because again, it tells the story of the transaction. So it's not enough to just clump all these documents together. You know, the 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 order matters. So great. I start doing closing books. After that, once I, let's say, now have a greater familiarity just with documents and real estate terms, and, and I appreciated starting at the very, very, very beginning and the basics. So after that, things got a little ugly, Although I don't think the situation was unique at the time, but it very much was lawyering by fire. There wasn't a whole lot of training. There wasn't a lot of mentoring. There was no formal process for you know for teaching and development. So I, I had complicated things thrown at me. I had documents thrown at me. I was basically told to figure it out which was tough for me at first. It was really hard because I am someone who likes to collaborate. I'm someone who likes to ask ask questions. So it was really hard. And so I, I had to figure it out. But in order to get to the point of being able to start figuring out and getting a sense of what I was doing, I went through a lot of, you know, uncomfortable and, you know, kind of scary situations in the sense of, you know, when you try to figure something complicated out when you're a young attorney who knows nothing, and you show up and you draft a document. I remember one time I was asked to draft a triple net lease, and it was thrown at me at the end of the day. And the partner who gave it to me was basically like, here, I need this by tomorrow, and walked out the door. I had no idea what a triple net lease was. He didn't even explain that much to me. So he gave me a form. And like a young, uneducated attorney at the time, you know, I took the form home, and I started working on it. And I didn't make a whole lot of changes. Like I made the obvious changes. You know, I changed the party names. I changed the property. I, I didn't know what to do. And I, I came in the next day and I talked to him and I gave him the document and his reaction was very unpleasant. And that's not what you want to hear as a young lawyer, you know, because you're learning it. I had no guidance on how to do it. And that's sort of how a lot of things went when I was first starting out, my first year or two. So it was tough in that respect. And it it wasn't a nurturing environment. You know, it gets... I, I hate to say that it gets a little easier over time when people are so tough on you. And it did get easier. And then it finally got to the point where I realized that I should be somewhere else. And that's when it really came into perspective when I was no longer at that firm. And when I then moved on and saw what true training, mentoring, development was really like, and it taught me a lot in terms of how not to train, mentor, develop and treat people in the future.
0: That's unfortunately a very common story for many of us as young lawyers at our first job or jobs and not necessarily having the best mentoring experience and teaching and training experience. You do a lot of mentoring and training of you know real estate uh, attorneys who join our firm. How, how did it? inform how you uh, help young attorneys develop?
1: You know, it really impressed upon me the the importance of just putting in the time, you know, being available to young attorneys to ask questions, things that I felt so uncomfortable doing when I first started practicing because it just wasn't well-received and it really left an impression on me. So I think the, again, the importance of really making the time, being available for questions being available to explain, whether it be a document, whether it be, you know, whether it be a contract, a brief, um, the outcome of a case, just, again, putting the time in so that any young attorney feels nurtured, feels that they have resources available, feels like there is somebody there, and hopefully many people there, supporting them.
0: What's interesting, I, I found in talking with other lawyers who've had similar experiences to yours is sort of the 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 lack of foresight um, on the attorneys who are sort of uh, you know feeling probably in their own right that they're doing it maybe the same way that they were taught because what you're really trying to do is is grow and develop a young lawyer uh, in such a way that not only helps them in their career but also helps you in your practice and and that training has to be different right you have to you know, it's like we learned in in torts and law school, right? You take the plaintiff as you find her, right? right. And so we have to do that with with young lawyers as well. So I'm glad things changed for the for the positive when you went to a a, a new firm. And um so how did your development and experience grow once you had shifted to that new firm?
1: So I made the decision to leave the firm that I was at and just to tie that one off that my parting from that firm was less than pleasant when I told them that I was leaving so that probably was just solidified the fact that I was making the right decision so I I joined a new firm and they were specifically looking to hire someone in the real estate finance area something that I had really never done before and the attorney who kind of spearheaded that group at the firm, you know, he said to me right from the get-go, like, I will train you, which was great. I mean, I was coming in. They knew I was a it, very transparent. They knew that it was not something that I had really done before and really didn't know what I was doing. So it was nice that they were so welcoming and open to the idea and said up front, we will train you. And that's what happened. This one particular attorney You know, who was definitely my mentor, who many people would say, like, I don't know how you can work with him. He's so rough. You know, he's got such a bark to him. But you know what? We had a good rapport and we had a dialogue and we communicated. And he took the time. I spent hours and hours and hours in his office, just sitting there, sometimes doing nothing, right? Nothing other than listening to him on the phone or watching him in a meeting or watching him sit there, like, make his. To do list for the day. He was so fastidious in how he did everything. He spent the time, if I would draft a document, to then l- literally go over it with me line by line. And one of my takeaways from working with him was that, on top of the substance of the document, he taught me that how a document looks, the presentation of the document is equally as important. And so, a lot of kind of his habits are still with me today in terms of margins and fonts and spacing. So he he really, really helped me develop as a lawyer at that time and really helped build my confidence.
0: Let's talk a bit about the substantive aspects of, of your job, types of deals that that you work on, and then a little bit about you know how the pandemic has has impacted your practice. Talk a little about, you know, sort of what's on the docket, what's going on now.
1: So I do a lot in real estate finance. So I represent a lot of lenders, you know, whether they be banks, whether they be private lenders, whether they be more, you know, institutional type lenders. And so I feel very fortunate from this point of view, representing the lender, that I I get an overview of what's happening in the industry, because you get to see from the lender's point of view you know how they're underwriting a deal, you know, supporting information, you know, hearing what what other deals similar to the deal at hand, you know, how they're being handled, comps, etc. So, I really feel very fortunate from that perspective to really get a great like snapshot view of what's happening in real estate. You know, I think people are reading a lot about this right now. I mean, I don't think I know, but you know, coming out of the pandemic, we obviously know that that real estate is front and center in a lot of different ways. You know, I find myself in downtown Chicago, right? The, the office buildings are empty. I mean, this is something that, you know, we have brand new buildings going up around us and downtown is maybe at 5% occupancy, which is which is quite crazy. So you can imagine how that impacts just real estate, the use of real estate, the use of an office. I'd say that when the pandemic hit, as far as my practice, We were all, you know, I'd say a little panicked, but just, you know, unclear of where things things were headed. Three months into it, things started, you know, easing up a little bit. I was working on a on a project where a client of mine is selling to a developer, you know, to build two large multifamily buildings. Those went on hold. I mean, so projects just quickly started going on hold. And you just myself and others, we just didn't know where things were headed. The biggest issues are, are to me, our use of an office and redevelop ways that developers can redevelop spaces now to make them touchless, air filtration, all of the things that we learned coming out of this pandemic, where people don't have to touch, where people feel safe, where people feel healthy. But otherwise, the real estate industry is thriving. And for me, it's been such a huge relief because I lived through, as a real estate attorney, the the you know the last financial crisis, 2008, 9, 10. And that truly was a real estate crisis, a real estate and banking crisis. And it was not a fun time. And the first thing when this pandemic hit this time and deals started going on hold, the, my, the first thing I started thinking about was, oh my God, this is going to be a repeat of what we went through 12, 13 years ago. And it, it was a huge relief to me and I know to many others that that didn't happen. And in fact, all signs pointing to the fact that real estate, the market is thriving, you know, hopefully that's a good sign for other industries to come. The forecast is that it will, it looks like it'll continue this way for quite a few years to come.
0: It is a whole new world, right? And that impacts all of our, all of our practices and how we think about our clients' problems, clients' deals, or what have been some of the most challenging issues that that you've been dealing with, just practically speaking, on a day-to-day basis uh, in your practice?
1: So this is something that I don't think people realize, but in the real estate industry, in order to close deals, in order to get a deed recorded, and that could be if you're buying or selling your home, that could be if you're buying or selling a, you know, a 50-story office building, you need to have an original, wet signature document and on top of that you need to have an original wet signature notary block during a pandemic when people were not leaving their houses when offices were closed most people don't have a notary you know that lives with them it was very difficult to obtain original documents it was a big logistical challenge during this time a lot of people would send documents back and they'd be docu signed the recorder does not accept a docu signed deed it doesn't work we you, we had to plan, you had to think in advance, you had to be proactive. If you had a closing, you know, two weeks from now, you'd be starting to get your closing documents and things FedExed a week or so, or even longer in advance. You know, I'd be sending FedEx labels to clients to try to make it as easy on them as possible. We would do drive-by signings drive by notaries. I laugh at it now. I did a number of deals during, during the last year, a number of loan deals during the pandemic with this one attorney. He happens to live. Well, now he's moved to the suburbs like everyone else. Um, <laughs> he was right on my walk home. So like, I've been coming to the office cause I can walk to the office. And he was right on my walk home. So I would text him and we we would meet on the street corner and we would exchange original documents. And that like became our routine during the pandemic. And it was just the easiest way to get things done. And, you know, it'd be eight o'clock at night. It'd be seven o'clock in the morning, you know, whatever it was, but we figured it out. We had to adapt.
0: It's all about, all about adaptability, right? I mean, that's what has forced all of us out of our, some might say comfort zone. Some might say, you know, off of our hamster wheel, whatever the case may be doing things the way that we've always done them, because that's the way they've been done. And this pandemic just sort of turned that upside down for, for everybody in every, in every practice area. So you would have your surreptitious meetings on the corner with the <laughs> other lawyer, you know, under the street lamp, right? That's <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly,
0: exactly right. Right, that's so funny. So, I mean, you've been practicing for a lot of years now. We all have stories about sort of memorable moments and and uh, challenging moments, you know, in our careers. You know, I don't know if any particular ones come to mind, but I think it's really interesting for for people to hear about these memorable moments, be they you know positive or negative, because we can all learn that if nothing else, all of us as lawyers, as hard as we try, right, we are. We are human beings. Sometimes things don't go the way we want them to go. Any, I don't know if anything comes to mind in terms of, you know, any deals that you worked on historically or, or anything else.
1: So one particularly comes to mind, and this is why I always say to people, like you learn from your mistakes. And, and again, something I try to be very um, empathetic as far as, you know, as far as any lawyer who makes this mistake, but I was an associate. And I was working on a development deal and I think it was farmland for what that's worth. But there were a number of contingencies that go into the contract because you know you need to get your zoning, you need to get your entitlements. So a buyer gets different periods of time to be able to do their due diligence, um, get their zoning contingencies so that they can build what they wanna build. I think it was single family homes for this particular transaction. So, but again, like in any real estate transaction, we sort of live by the critical dates as we call them, and you know, in addition to our checklists, we have critical dates lists, and so the dates are very important. And the partner who I was working with was out of town, and and it was on me to you know make sure the due diligence period that was coming up, whether it was the due diligence or the zoning, but the date was coming, the expiration date was coming, and the contract provided, you know, you had to send notice prior to the expiration of the due diligence period if you were going to terminate; otherwise, the contract continued, you know, continued in full force and effect. So. I wasn't hearing anything from the client. And this is no excuse whatsoever. I wasn't hearing anything from the client and the date came. And admittedly, I was not so sure what it was that I should be doing at that time. And the date came and the date went. And we then found ourselves in a little bit of a pickle. You know, I found myself in a little bit of a pickle and the partner came back and he said, what happened? And, you know, I just had to own it. If I could put something out there, and anyone, you just have to own your mistakes. And I owned it. Obviously in real estate, we're not dealing with life or death. It felt terrible at the time. And the partner fixed it and, and all ended up being fine. But I will double, triple, quadruple check those dates. I will stalk the client to get an answer and not let those dates go by. But that's certainly something that I learned at the time. And it felt terrible to make a mistake at the time. It was quite a while ago, but, you know, 15, 16, 17 years later, it still stands out in my mind. And it was such a memorable learning experience.
0: The whole notion of owning a mistake as a young lawyer, which you were at the time, in experience, is a really, really hard thing to do because, you know, the profession, as well as each of us, holds ourselves to... A very, very high standard. And um, God forbid we should make a mistake. My mentor, when I practiced in Boston, the first few years of my life, my professional life, was very clear about that. He sort of fronted that issue uh, as he was teaching me. He said, you will make mistakes. You have to own those mistakes. And the good news, he said, which was very reassuring, is most mistakes are fixable. And just hearing that from someone who I had tremendous respect with, who was an outstanding lawyer, who spent a lot of time uh, with me, was was so reassuring. Because what we do as lawyers is hard enough to have that burden of never being able to make a mistake is is really a bridge too far uh, in in a lot of respects. And um, you can't fix something if you don't own it. Talk to someone about it and say, "This is what happened. What can be done to fix it?" So that's a really, you know, valuable lesson. Painful for sure. You remember it all these years later. But again, what a blessing to have had that experience. And it's a it's a great um, lesson and story for the next generation of lawyers to hear as well. That someone like yourself, who is co-chair of a major real estate group in the city and has done all of these things, guess what? Yeah. A long time ago, this happened and it was okay. And it'll be okay for you. Uh, it helps support and build the next generation of lawyers, which I think you know we have an obligation to, to do. Let's talk a little bit about your inspirations. We, we've talked uh, kind of how you came to the law, you know, you really didn't have that much of a choice the way you you described <laughs> it, um, but it seems to have worked out very, very well. I think your parents were right. You've talked about a little bit about your practice and, and the impact of the pandemic on your practice. What inspires you professionally and personally?
1: So I think that it's the same personally and professionally. You know, I'm very, I, I'd say I'm inspired by other people, you know, I love meeting new people. I love hearing people's stories. I love hearing and understanding what people do for a living or just in life. So I'm really driven by other people. I will say, I can push myself pretty hard, but there's nothing like that energy that you get, you know, from other people. Whether you call it like a little bit of you know healthy competition or w- whatever it is, you know, I really thrive from from being around people and and from learning from other people and having experiences with other people. So it's a bit of a generalization, but I, I can't say it any better than people inspire me.
0: You know, I, I think, you know, I mean, a number of lawyers who I've spoken with over the years, you know, when you get to that essential question of why did you become a lawyer, regardless of what area of law they they ended up in, a lot of them have, have expressed in one way or another that they wanted to help people in some way personally in their business. And it's, you know, it's a really interesting thing to, to hear being a lawyer. It's, it's, it's about the business and it's about our legal practice, but at the end of the day, we're helping Mm -hmm. uh, individuals or family businesses, people who have difficult jobs in companies, corporations, real estate developers, or banks, other lenders in your case. Um, But at the end of the day, they're people. Right? And how do we get to know them and understand them in a way that we can better serve them? The pandemic, you made it through. Um, we're coming out of it. Thank goodness. I hope people are getting vaccinated. What got you through? You know, was it the, the great American baking show? Everybody has their things they, they, they went to, to to move through this pandemic. And, and I'll preface the question recognizing. Uh, and acknowledging how difficult the pandemic has been for so many people and how uh, fortunate uh, we have to count ourselves and our blessings uh, through all of this. Talk a little bit about sort of what got you through.
1: So, so I do want to mention that, yes, I really do feel for people who struggled during the pandemic. And I, I hope now that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that, you know, anyone who who had a hard time, you know, will start feeling differently so I do think that that's important for us to note. And I can tell you there were times, quite honestly, where I felt a little guilty during the pandemic because I wasn't feeling that way. And while I knew that other people were, and there were people in my life that I was surprised, people who I thought would be fine weren't doing so well during the pandemic. And it, and it threw me for a bit of a loop, but yet it probably shouldn't have because there are so many people out there who did struggle in, in many different ways, I, you know, I, I do just want to, you know, acknowledge that as far as myself, Netflix was a great friend during the pandemic, not something I'm proud of my mom, it, she, she realized during this pandemic, when I would talk to her, she was like, wow, you really watch a lot of TV. Not something you know even to this day, right? You're you're always you're always your parents' child. Um, she was not proud of that, but you know, I blew through Mad Men. That was great. Watched Shit's Creek. I was a holdout. I jumped on the bandwagon during the pandemic. Totally worth it. There was one time during the pandemic that I actually thought of you, Ed, talking about baking because I made these like vegan, gluten-free cinnamon rolls from scratch. So I give myself a lot of kudos for that because most people who know me, I don't cook at all, but I do enjoy baking. Not that I had really done it much, but picked it up again during the last year. So that's been kind of fun. And that was an activity that I was probably baking too many cookies and things just out of boredom, but it passed the time. I will say I logged a lot of miles over the last year. I mean, I walked this city over and over again. Um, It really kept me sane. I don't do well when I'm kind of hold up inside. So even if it was putting on multiple layers, putting on my heaviest jacket, gloves, hat, you name it. I mean, I don't think there was a day that I miss not getting outside and walking. I met people along the way. I would meet up with friends. Not many places were open, you know, certainly at the beginning of all this, there was like maybe one coffee place you know, we'd meet up at that place, we'd get a coffee and we'd walk for miles and miles and just log our steps. It's kind of how I stayed connected with a lot of people during this time. We would meet for walks.
0: Getting out in the fresh air, even if it's really, really cold out. You know, baking, you know, there's a beginning, there's a middle, <laughs> there's an end, right? You're following the recipe. But it's then
1: a, you eat it. And then, then you, and then you
0: eat it. There's a lot of great vegan sweet recipes out there. And uh, we bake a lot, a lot of vegan vegan sweets in our in our household as well as sort of silly as it might seem you know getting wrapped up in a in a show to to take one's mind off of something Um, particularly a show that's been so tremendously impactful like a Schitt's Creek um, really provided uh, a lot of comfort for a lot of people so you know really cool that that you're able to sort of move through it that way and found your way right and that's what everyone uh, has had to has had to do. It's been really, really great speaking with you. I, I learn more. That's what this podcast is about. I learn more about you than than i I've known, and I've known you for quite some time. And uh, I really look forward to if we have a chance uh, down the road if some you know emerging issues come up uh, in the real estate world, in the lending world that we can um, uh, talk about that on a substantive level, and you know let our let our our listeners here uh, hear about that as well. Thank you so much for uh, for your time today all of you listening. And otherwise, as always, stay well. Thanks, Ed. We dedicate this podcast in loving memory of Whitney Brooke Meister O'Connell.